Section 5 of the Argonautica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Argonautica by Apollonius Rhodius. Translated by R. C. Seaton. Section 5. Book 2. Part 1. Here were the ox stalls and farm of Amicus the haughty king of the Beberitians, whom once a nymph by Thinian Melai united to Poseidon Gnetlius, bare the most arrogant of men. For even for strangers he laid down an insulting ordinance, that none should depart till they had made trial of him in boxing, and he had slain many of the neighbours. And at that time, too, he went down to the ship, and in his insolence scorned to ask them the occasion of their voyage and who they were but at once spake out among them all listen ye wanderers by sea to what it befits you to know it is the rule that no stranger who comes to the Bebritians should depart till he has raised his hands in battle against mine wherefore select your bravest warrior from the host and set him here on the spot to contend with me in boxing but if ye pay no heed and trample my decrees under foot assuredly to your sorrow will stern necessity come upon you thus he spake in his pride but fierce anger seized them when they heard it and the challenge smote polydeuces most of all and quickly he stood forth his comrade's champion and cried hold now and display not to us thy brutal violence whoever thou art for we will obey thy rules as thou sayest willingly now do i myself undertake to meet thee thus he spake outright but the other with rolling eyes glared on him like to a lion struck by a javelin when hunters in the mountains are hemming him round and though pressed by the throng he reeks no more of them but keeps his eyes fixed singling out that man only who struck him first and slew him not hereupon the son of tyndareus laid aside his mantle closely woven delicately wrought which one of the lemnian's maidens had given him as a pledge of hospitality and the king threw down his dark cloak of double fold with its clasps and the knotted crook of mountain olive which he carried then straightway they looked and chose close by a spot that pleased them and bade their comrades sit upon the sand in two lines nor were they alike to behold in form or in stature the one seemed to be a monstrous son of baleful typhoeus or of earth herself such as she brought forth aforetime in her wrath against zeus but the other the son of tyndareus was like a star of heaven whose beams are fairest as it shines through the nightly sky at eventide such was the son of zeus the bloom of the first down still on his cheeks still with a look of gladness in his eyes but his might and fury waxed like a wild beast's and he poised his hands to see if they were pliant as before and were not altogether numbed by toil and rowing but amicus on his side made no trial but standing apart in silence he kept his eyes upon his foe and his spirit surged within him all eager to dash the life-blood from his breast and between them laorius the henchman of amicus 
placed at their feet on each side two pairs of gauntlets made of rawhide, dry, exceeding tough. And the king addressed the hero with arrogant words. Whichever of these thou wilt, without casting lots, I grant thee freely, that thou mayest not blame me hereafter. Bind them about thy hands. Thou shalt learn and tell another how skilled I am to carve the dry oxhides, and to spatter men's cheeks with blood. Thus he spake, but the other gave back no taunt in answer, but with a light smile readily took up the gauntlets that lay at his feet, and to him came Castor and mighty Talos, son of Bias, and they quickly bound the gauntlets about his hands, often bidding him to be of good courage. And to Amicus came Aretus and Ornitus, but little they knew, poor fools, that they had bound them for the last time on their champion, a victim of evil fate. Now, when they stood apart and were ready with their gauntlets, straightway in front of their faces they raised their heavy hands and matched their might in deadly strife. Hereupon the Bibrician king, even as a fierce wave of the sea rises in a crest against a swift ship, but she by the skill of the crafty pilot just escapes the shock when the billow is eager to break over the bulwark, so he followed up the son of Tyndareus, trying to daunt him, and gave him no respite, but the hero, ever unbounded, by his skill baffled the rush of his foe, and he quickly noted the brutal play of his fists, to see where he was invincible in strength, and where inferior, and stood unceasingly, and returned blow for blow. And as when shipwrights with their hammers smite ships' timbers to meet the sharp clamps, fixing layer upon layer, and the blows resound one after another, so cheeks and jaws crashed on both sides, and a huge clattering of teeth arose. Nor did they cease ever from striking their blows until laboured gasping overcame both. And standing a little apart, they wiped from their foreheads sweat in abundance, wearily panting for breath. Then back they rushed together again, as two bulls fight in furious rivalry for a grazing heifer. Next Amicus rising on tiptoe, like one who slays an ox, sprung to his full height, and swung his heavy hand down upon his rival. But the hero swerved aside from the rush, turning his head, and just received the arm on his shoulder, and coming near, and slipping his knee past the king's, with a rush he struck him above the ear, and broke the bones inside, and the king in agony fell upon his knees, and the minion heroes shouted for joy, and his life was poured forth all at once. Nor were the Bebrycians reckless of their king, but altogether took up rough clubs and spears, and rushed straight on Polydeuces. But in front of him stood his comrades, their keen swords drawn from the sheath. First Castor struck upon the head a man as he rushed at him, and it was cleft in twain, and fell on each side upon his shoulders. And Polydeuces slew huge Itimonius and Mimas, the one with a sudden leap he smote beneath the breast with a swift foot, and threw him in the dust, and as the other drew near, he struck him with his right hand above the left eyebrow, and tore away his eyelid, and the eyeball was left bare. But Orides, insolent henchman of Amicus, wounded Talos, son of Bias, in the side, but did not slay him, but only, grazing the skin, the bronze sped under his belt, and touched not the flesh. 
likewise aretus with well-seasoned club smote iphitus the steadfast son of eurytus not yet destined to an evil death assuredly soon was he himself to be slain by the sword of clytius then ancaeus the dauntless son of lycurgus quickly seized his huge axe and in his left hand holding a bear's dark hide plunged into the midst of the Bebrycians with furious onset and with him charged the sons of aeacus and with them started warlike jason and as when amid the folds grey wolves rush down on a winter's day and scare countless sheep unmarked by the keen-scented dogs and the shepherds too and they seek what first to attack and carry off often glaring around but the sheep are just huddled together and trample on one another so the heroes grievously scared the arrogant Bebrycians, and as shepherds or beekeepers smote out a huge swarm of bees in a rock and they meanwhile pent up in their hive murmur with droning hum till stupefied by the murky smoke they fly forth far from the rock so they stayed steadfast no longer but scattered themselves inland through Bebrycia, proclaiming the death of amicus fools not to perceive that another woe all unforeseen was hard upon them for at that hour their vineyards and villages were being ravaged by the hostile spear of lycus and the mariandyni now that their king was gone for they were ever at strife about the iron-bearing land and now the foe was destroying their steadings and farms and now the heroes from all sides were driving off their countless sheep and one spake among his fellows thus bethink ye what they would have done in their cowardice if haply some god had brought heracles hither assuredly if he had been here no trial would there have been of fists i ween but when the king drew near to proclaim his rules the club would have made him forget his pride and the rules to boot yea we left him uncared for on the strand and we sailed over sea and full well each one of us shall know our baneful folly now that he is far away thus he spake but all these things had been wrought by the counsels of zeus then they remained there through the night and tended the hurts of the wounded men and offered sacrifice to the immortals and made ready a mighty meal and sleep fell upon no man besides the bowl and the blazing sacrifice they wreathed their fair brows with the bay that grew by the shore whereto their housers were bound and chanted a song to the lyre of orpheus in sweet harmony and the windless shore was charmed by their song and they celebrated the therapnaean son of zeus but when the sun rising from far lands lighted up the dewy hills and wakened the shepherds then they loosed their housers from the stem of the bay tree and put on board all the spoil they had need to take and with a favouring wind they steered through the eddying bosporus hereupon a wave like a steep mountain rose aloft in front as though rushing upon them ever upheaved above the clouds nor would you say that they could escape grim death for in its fury it hangs over the middle of the ship like a cloud yet it sinks away into calm if it meets with a skilful helmsman so they by the steering craft of typhes escaped unhurt but sore dismayed and on the next day they fastened their housers to the coast opposite the bithynian land there phineus son of agenor 
had his home by the sea. Phineas, who above all men endured most bitter woes, because of the gift of prophecy which Leto's son had granted him aforetime, and he reverenced not a whit, even Zeus himself, for he foretold unerringly to men his sacred will. Wherefore Zeus sent upon him a lingering old age, and took from his eyes the pleasant light, and suffered him not to have joys of the dainties untold that the dwellers around ever brought to his house, when they came to enquire the will of heaven. But on a sudden swooping through the clouds, the harpies with their crooked beaks incessantly snatched the food away from his mouth and hands, and at times not a morsel of food was left, at others but a little, in order that he might live and be tormented. And they poured forth over all a loathsome stench, and no one dared not merely to carry food to his mouth, but even to stand at a distance. So foully reeked the remnants of the meal. But straightway, when he heard the voice and the tramp of the band, he knew that they were the men passing by, at whose coming Zeus's oracle had declared to him that he should have joy of his food. And he rose from his couch like a lifeless dream, bowed over his staff, and crept to the door on his withered feet, feeling the walls. And as he moved, his limbs trembled from weakness and age, and his parched skin was caked with dirt, and naught but the skill held his bones together. And he came forth from the hall with wearied knees, and sat on the threshold of the courtyard, and a dark stupor covered him, and it seemed that the earth reeled around beneath his feet, and he lay in a strengthless trance, speechless. But when they saw him, they gathered round and marvelled, and he at last drew laboured breath from the depths of his chest, and spoke among them with prophetic utterance. Listen, bravest of all the Hellenes, if it be truly ye, whom by a king's ruthless command Jason is leading on the ship Argo, in quest of the fleece, it is ye truly. Even yet my soul by its divination knows everything. Thanks I render to thee, O king, son of Leto, plunged in bitter affliction though I be. I beseech you, by Zeus, the god of suppliance, the sternest foe to sinful men, and for the sake of Phoebus and Hera herself, under whose especial care ye have come hither, help me, save an ill-fated man from misery, and depart not uncaring, and leave me thus as ye see. For not only has the fury set her foot on my eyes, and I drag on to the end a weary old age, but besides my other woes, a woe hangs over me the bitterest of all. The harpies, swooping down from some unseen den of destruction, ever snatch the food from my mouth, and I have no device to aid me. But it were easier, when I long for a meal, to escape my own thoughts than them, so swiftly do they fly through the air. But if haply they do leave me a morsel of food, it reeks of decay, and the stench is unendurable. Nor could any mortal bear to draw near even for a moment. No, not if his heart were wrought of adamant. But necessity, bitter and insatiate, compels me to abide, and abiding to put food in my cursed belly. These pests, the oracle declares, the sons of Boreas shall restrain, and no strangers are they that shall ward them off, if indeed I am Phineus, 
who was once renowned among men for wealth and the gift of prophecy, and if I am the son of my father Agenor. And, when I ruled among the Thracians, by my bridal gifts I brought home their sister Cleopatra to be my wife. So spake Agenor's son, and deep sorrow seized each of the heroes, and especially the two sons of Boreas, and brushing away a tear they drew nigh, and Zetes spake as follows, taking in his own the hand of the grief-worn sire. Unhappy one, none other of men is more wretched than thou, methinks. Why upon thee is laid the burden of so many sorrows? Hast thou with baneful folly sinned against the god through thy skill in prophecy? For this are they greatly wroth with thee. Yet our spirit is dismayed within us, for all our desire to aid thee, if indeed the God has granted this privilege to us too. For plain to discern to men of earth are the reproofs of the immortals, and we will never check the harpies when they come, for all our desire, until thou hast sworn that for this we shall not lose the favour of heaven. Thus he spake, and towards him the aged sire opened his sightless eyes, and lifted them up and replied with these words, be silent, store not up such thoughts in thy heart, my child. Let the son of Leto be my witness. He who of his gracious will taught me the lore of prophecy, and be witness the ill-starred doom which possesses me, and this dark cloud upon my eyes, and the gods of the underworld, and may their curse be upon me if I die perjured thus. No wrath from heaven will fall upon you too, for your help to me. Then were those too eager to help him because of the oath, and quickly the younger heroes prepared a feast for the aged man, a last prey for the harpies, and both stood near him to smite with the sword those pests when they swooped down. Scarcely had the aged man touched the food when they fell forthwith, like bitter blasts or flashes of lightning, suddenly darted from the clouds and swooped down with a yell, fiercely craving for food. And the heroes beheld them, and shouted in the midst of their onrush. But they, at the cry, devoured everything, and sped away over the sea after. And an intolerable stench remained. And behind them the two sons of Boreas, drawing their swords, rushed in pursuit. For Zeus imparted to them tireless strength. But without Zeus they could not have followed for the harpies used ever to outstrip the blasts of the west wind when they came to Phineus and when they left him. And as when upon the mountainside hounds cunning in the chase run in the track of horned goats or deer, and as they strain a little behind, gnash their teeth upon the edge of their jaws in vain, so Zetes and Calais, rushing very near, just grazed the harpies in vain with their fingertips, and assuredly, they would have torn them to pieces, despite heaven's will, when they had overtaken them far off at the floating islands, had not swift Iris seen them and leapt down from the sky from heaven above, and checked them with these words, It is not lawful, O sons of Boreas, to strike with your swords the harpies, the hounds of mighty Zeus, but I myself will give you a pledge, that hereafter, they shall not draw near to Phineus. With these words she took an oath by the waters of Styx, 
which to all the gods is most dread and most awful, that the harpies would never thereafter again approach the home of Phineus, son of Agenor, for so it was fated, and the heroes yielding to the oath turned back their flight to the ship, and on account of this men call them the islands of turning, though aforetime they call them the floating islands. And the harpies and iris parted. They entered their den in Minoan Crete, but she sped up to Olympus, soaring aloft on her swift wings. End of section five. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.